I have to destroy it. I can't give it back to them, to those, those creatures. This is Allie Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 10, Lamination. So Neith found a flyer for this thing called ConlangCon. Is that right? You want to tell me about that? The flyer had a logo at the top, a purple background with a stylized red ziggurat against a yellow sun. Whether the sun was rising or setting, I couldn't tell. Beneath the logo, in large letters, was written, ConlangCon, Convention Center, Downtown, Friday and Saturday, all conlangers and conlang curious are welcome. Registration, $25. Includes tote bag. Perfect. Let's go. Neith was way too enthusiastic. But he was right. This would be exactly the right place to find out more about constructed languages and maybe what St. Hildegard was up to or why the Tower of Babel was so important. We arrived at the convention center, paid our fee, collected our tote bags, and hung our laminated participant badges on lanyards around our necks. The plastic smell of the badges was strong, but calmed me. I had my badge. I belonged here, even if I had no aptitude for languages. I examined my badge. Beneath paid registrant were the words, Padges Aleganto. That's... Paid registrant in Esperanto, probably the most famous and widely spoken conlang. You're going to have a great day, my geeky friend. Hey, look, at that table, they're selling T-shirts with the icon of St. Hildegard we saw at the church with the words, if you're a conlanger, say, and then something in Hildegard's alphabet. I brought the key. It says, thanks, Hilda. Mm, I kind of want one. There is a signboard with the schedule. Looks like there are three tracks. I'll get some details and be right back. As I went to check out the signboard, a group of people walked past all dressed in similar gear, black pants and tunics overlaid with metallic gray armor vests and large shoulder pads. They all wore wigs with big frizzy hair and sported glued-on, oversized, deeply grooved foreheads. Like us, they carried Kanlangkan tote bags. One of them dropped a piece of paper. Neith picked it up and said something to the man who dropped it. He took the paper and gurgled something back to Neith. No way! You speak Klingon? 
Well, not fluently. I had an uncle, a serious Trekkie, who wanted me to learn Klingon. So for a while, he spoke to me only in Klingon. Immersion Klingon, he called it. It was fun. Drove my parents crazy since my uncle and I could talk without anyone else knowing what we were saying. I never went as far as donning the rubber forehead. My aunt made him stop. She said the constant guttural noises ruined family gatherings. Okay, got it. Track one is That's Conlangtainment and has talks about invented languages for games, television, and films. Ooh, Bard Homer is here. That explains those Dothraki warriors. Neith pointed out a group of men, some wearing fake beards, dressed in leather loincloths, sandals, and necklaces made out of enormous beads and feathers. Bard invented the languages used in a couple of sci-fi channel TV series and a big one for HBO. That talk's going to be packed. Track two is Conlang, The Journey Within. The talks in this section are about inventing your own language for self-expression. One of the talks is titled, So What If No One Else Understands? My Own Private Conlang. The third track, Coming Together the Conlang Way, is about invented languages that are supposedly easier to understand or learn than languages that developed naturally. These people seem to be in search of a universal language, something everyone can use. There are talks on Esperanto. Why doesn't it catch on? Intralingua, not just for scientists anymore, and mathematics as the true universal language. It all adds up. Everyone uses numbers. I wonder if people in the various tracks get along. One presentation is listed all by itself at the bottom of the schedule. Reconstructing the Unconstructed Construct, the Original Language, by Rowan Laplage, ABD. Room 311, 2 p.m. The Original Language sounds like something we should learn about, right? Plus, his talk looked kind of lonely hanging out there all alone. It was just about two o'clock. We took the elevator to the third floor and followed the arrows toward room 311. Room 310 was completely filled, and several people were sitting outside on the floor in the hall. We stepped over their outstretched legs and made our way into room 311. It was small, airless, and had no windows. Its lighting came from those fluorescent bulbs that make everyone's skin look slightly green. Five folding chairs were set up in front of a podium to which a Conlang Con logo had been affixed. Only one person was in the room when we arrived. Wearing a flannel shirt and jeans, he was sitting behind a folding table, his loafer-clad feet propped up on top of it. His thinning auburn hair was pulled back in a ponytail. He was reading a paperback, Don Quixote, through his rectangular framed glasses when he noticed us. He stuck his face back into his book. You want room 310. Next door. Follow the herd. Are you Mr. Laplage? Uh, yes. What does ABD stand for? It means I've completed my PhD, except for my dissertation. All but dissertation. I'm in my 19th year of graduate work. Wait, who sent you? Why are you here? Aren't you speaking on the original language? That is my topic. You want to stay? We want to know more about the original language. 
His face broke out in a smile. He took a thick sheaf of papers from a battered leather briefcase on the floor, stood up, smoothed his flannel shirt, and went to the podium. We sat in the folding chairs. He glanced at his watch. Somebody better close the door. They're going to get rowdy over there. He riffled the pages he had set on the podium and straightened his glasses. Oh, no. He's not going to read all of that. Reconstructing the Unconstructed Construct, the original language by Rowan Laplage. Uh, uh, Since it's just us, can you just tell us about the original language? Just tell you? Yes. Since you're an expert, can you just tell us? Well, here are all these people making up languages, making them up. For games, navel-gazing, what have you. Okay, I have my answer about collegiality amongst the different tracks. One group of conlangers, call them universalists if you will, wants to do something actually noble. Make up a universal language everyone can use. The sounds were coming from the other side of the partition that separated the fully subscribed room 310 from 311, which, I noticed as I looked around, might actually have been a snack alcove for room 310. Next, they'll start with the Valerian drinking songs. The Conlang Con Program Committee invites me to give a presentation every year, even though no one ever comes. But clearly, they have no respect! I can respect what the Universalists are trying to do, but they are completely misguided. He sounded pretty sure of himself for someone addressing a broom closet of high schoolers. What's the problem with the Universalists? They're wasting time inventing, constructing something that already exists. That's one of the reasons I get no respect here. I'm the only one who believes we can recover the original Universal language. There already is a universal language? Well, was. I'm sure you already know the story of the Tower of Babel. That story was told to explain the diversity of peoples and languages. Why don't we all use the same words? Understand one another? The Tower of Babel incident takes place after the flood, right? We nodded, encouraging him to go on. Now remember, people were commanded to fill the earth, go everywhere, see new things, Spread out. Multiply! But did they? No. All the people of the world gathered on the plains of Shinar and started to build a great tower that would reach to the heavens. And why? We may have an inkling. I thought of the horrible noise under the dome. Mr. Laplage stuck to the biblical storyline. To make a name for themselves. Fame, fortune, reputation. Of course, humans' misguided pursuit of fame is just one of the theories for why God decided to thwart construction. Some ancient rabbis said the builders were trying to reach heaven to take it by force, or that they constructed an idol at the top of the tower. Why exactly God was so affronted isn't explained definitively within the story itself. For whatever reason, God put an end to their plans stopped construction on their skyscraper. How? By scrambling their language, 
Suddenly, bricklayer number one can't understand what bricklayer number two standing right next to him is talking about. What did you bring for lunch today, he says, but the other guy looks at him like he just told him his pants are on fire. The foreman is yelling, we need more mortar on the 36th floor, and the confused guy at the bottom, loading supplies at ground level, fills the basket full of rocks. Everything screeches to a halt. But notice before then, everyone was speaking the same language, one universal language. And that's not all. It was the same language used from the very beginning. Not just universal, but original. Uh, Excuse me, Mr. Lepage? Yeah? Who used it from the very beginning? And do you mean the very, very beginning? I do. This was the language the first humans, Adam and Eve in the biblical story, used with each other and with the animals too. The serpent addressed Eve in this tongue. And if God spoke creation into being, this is the language God used. O first voice, through whom all creation was summoned. You know Hildegard of Bingen? A lot of people around here know about the great Abbas's constructed language, but not many can sing her music, and certainly not as beautifully. So you think this language existed and that it still exists, and you're trying to find this original universal language instead of constructing a new one? Exactly. So where is it? Hooligans! I've seen it. That is, I've seen a document written in the original language with my own eyes, so I know it exists. Where is it? I don't know. Gone. Maybe forever. Please go on. It's called The Book of Noah. My dissertation director, Dr. Sturgeon, had a copy, maybe the only copy. Got it from two people who approached him in the bar he was known to frequent a dive Cheap beer, sticky floors, dim lighting, usually pretty empty. The day after he got it, he told me a man and a woman wearing dark suits, sunglasses, and leather gloves came in while he was having his nightly Pimm's cup. He glanced up at the mirror behind the bar and saw one of them bolt the door. They sat down, one on each side of him. They were alone in the place except for the bartender who stepped down to the far end of the bar and started polishing glasses. One of the dark suits slid a briefcase up on the bar next to him. It was handcuffed to the man's wrist. Dr. Sturgeon, we have some manuscripts you will find interesting. Dr. Sturgeon was in charge of a big translation project. Dead sea scrolls, ancient fragments from stone jars and caves in the desert, that sort of thing. So his interest was piqued. But lots of people approached him with lots of different things, many of them faked or forged. So he said to them, This isn't Antiques Roadshow. What have you got? The woman unlocked the briefcase and pulled out a piece of papyrus in an archival folder and handed it to Dr. Surgeon. Dr. Surgeon took a look and knew he was staring at a section of the book of Isaiah, really old, possibly 2,500 years old. He was definitely interested. Next, the woman took out a cylindrical clay container about the size of a tube of toothpaste. 
stuck a gloved finger inside, and slid out a rolled-up scroll. She held it up so Dr. Sturgeon could see. Dr. Sturgeon gasped so loudly the bartender started over, bringing the baseball bat he kept behind the bar. No, no, we're fine. A letter from the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, written with authentic Ethiopian charcoal ink. He couldn't believe what these two dealers were offering. But it was the third document that intrigued him most, and most likely ruined his life. After seeing the genuineness of the first two manuscripts, Dr. Sturgeon knew they must have serious connections in the antiques market. The third manuscript would likely prove to be genuine as well. The woman set out a soft paper mat. Then she pulled out a large scroll and carefully unrolled it on top of the mat in front of Dr. Sturgeon. What is it? He didn't recognize the script and couldn't make out any of the words. The Book of Noah. It exists? A couple of ancient sources refer to it, but everyone in the scholarly community thinks it's been lost forever. Before your very eyes. What do you want for it? The words rushed out too quickly, made him sound desperate, but he was afraid they would vanish with the scroll and he would never see it again, or worse, they would offer it to someone else, and he would lose his chance at unparalleled fame in the scholarly world. Translate it. You translate it. It's yours. We give you one year. That's it? He couldn't believe his good fortune. He was one of the world's premier translators of ancient languages and dialects. The quiet man unlocked the briefcase's handcuff from his own wrist, placed the bracelet onto Dr. Sturgeon's wrist, and snapped the ratchet into place. It was so tight it bit into Dr. Sturgeon's arm. He showed me the impression that still marked him the next afternoon. The woman put the scroll back in the briefcase and locked it. She put the other two items in her handbag and gave Dr. Sturgeon two keys, one for the briefcase and one for the handcuff. One year. Then they left the bar. Dr. Sturgeon ordered another drink to celebrate. He lifted a toast to the now empty bar. To Noah! The next day when we met as usual in his office, he showed me his prize. This, my dear Rowan is what will make me famous. You too, by the way, protege of the great Dr. Sturgeon. What is the Book of Noah about? No one knows all the details, but it was apparently written by Enoch of First Enoch fame. Ancient references to the Book of Noah indicate that it is a letter Enoch wrote to Noah to encourage him to accept the mission to build the ark and save the future of humanity and animal life on earth. You can understand Noah's reluctance. Noah wasn't sure how the plan would work, why the Watchers wouldn't just come back and mess everything up again. So Enoch wrote to his great-grandson with more details than he provided in First Enoch. What those details are, no one knows without reading the letter. Whatever Enoch wrote must have convinced Noah to go ahead with the plan. So if someone could read it, it might tell them more about what happened to the Watchers or maybe where they are? Mr. Laplage eyed me like I had suggested we all go for a ride on my unicorn. Right, if they actually existed. Anyway, Dr. Surgeon explained why it is so important. The important thing for me is that it's written in the original language. It may be the only surviving document we have in that language. 
Deciphering it will be an amazing milestone in human intellectual development. Who knows what doors it will unlock? He showed me the three words he was sure of. Noah, book, and antimony. We all gaped at each other. You know what antimony is? Of course. Basic chemistry. It's right there in the periodic table. Go on, please. Mr. Laplage grabbed a sheet from his stack on the podium. He turned it over, grabbed a ballpoint pen from the pocket protector in his shirt pocket, and wrote the words. Like this. I still remember the look in Dr. Surgeon's eyes when he showed me, a gleam, but with a tinge of mania. That's all he had to go on. Dr. Sturgeon became obsessed. He stayed in his office, never went home, ate only what he could get delivered to his office or what I brought him, drank way too much caffeine, even more alcohol, stopped showing up for the classes he was supposed to teach. When the year had almost passed, he stopped coming into the office at all. I checked everywhere I knew to look for him, finally found him in that crummy bar, hat pulled down over his eyes, slumped in a corner booth, stubble on his face, beer stains on his raincoat. Empty bottles in front of him. He looked terrible. I put my arm on his shoulder. Dr. Sturgeon, what are you doing? Let's get you out of here. He looked at me, panic in his eyes. I've done it. I've cracked it. Tomorrow they come for it. Congratulations, Dr. Sturgeon. Shouldn't you be happy? You look frightened. What's happened? Whatever it is, I can help. No one can help. I have to destroy it. I can't give it back to them, to those... Those creatures. But I can't bear to have it lost to the world and to me. My chance for glory. I got his office key from his jacket pocket and helped him back to his office. I got him onto the sofa, opened his jacket, and took off his shoes. I locked his office behind me and slid the key under the door. It was the last time I ever saw him. He was found dead the next morning by the cleaning staff. Massive heart attack during the night. After his body was taken away, I checked his office. The manuscript was gone. What a loss. Your professor? The language? What do you think happened? Dr. Sturgeon was really scared. Like, translating the manuscript got to him. But I don't know if he destroyed the scroll or if someone took it. I just know I've seen it. And the three words, Noah, book, and antimony. It's not much to go on, but it's my life work now to reconstruct the original language. I felt really sad for Mr. Laplage and for Dr. Sturgeon, too. But I got really angry as I thought about who the manuscript pushers in the bar must have been and how they ruined one life and were now keeping Mr. Laplage lonely and stuck at conventions where no one appreciated him. You might be interested in this, though, since you know about Hildegard. He reached into his briefcase and handed a sheet of paper to Delani, who was sitting closest to him. I found it in Dr. Sturgeon's desk. It's the Book of Noah, translated into the lingua ignota. What? You know what it says? I thought you said Dr. Sturgeon was frightened by what he found there. If you think what it says is real, it would be frightening. But it's just a myth. I think he just cracked under pressure. He used to copy all sorts of things into Hildegard's language. It was a way to keep a copy that very few other people would ever pay attention to. We all glanced at each other. Can we keep this? Sure. I wish I could give you the original language. I'll keep working. 
Can I ask how you hope to go from three words to a whole language? Do you have any other clues? Just a couple. I remember a couple other letters that went with the name Noah, so those are probably prepositions. The other is that I assume that the original universal language had some connection to languages that developed and are still known. The story says God confused the language, not invented an entirely new way of communicating. So I've been playing with the meanings of Noah and book and antimony, and words that sound like those words in other languages, to see if that gets me anywhere. You know, like my last name, Laplage, is the French word for beach, and my first name, Rowan, sounds like Owen, although the meaning is different. Wait a second. Owen Beach? Are you the Owen Beach? That was my stage name. I was a child actor, did a bunch of commercials, started with diapers, did some serials. But your big role was playing Tommy Starnes in season three of the original Star Trek. No way! You were Tommy Starnes? In the children shall lead them? Tommy Starnes, that's me. He beamed, maybe happy to remember a simpler time before the Book of Noah. He explained to the rest of us not familiar with every episode of the classic TV series. I was the leader of a group of children possessed by the evil spirit Gorgon, who killed our parents and got us to take over the Starship Enterprise until Kirk, Spock, and Dr. Bones snapped us out of it, saving us and the universe. That was you. Once upon a time. He opened his wallet and showed us a slightly crinkled Tommy Starnes original autograph series Star Trek trading card. A young, fresh-faced, red-haired boy stared off to the right, wearing the green and white striped boat neck shirt he must have worn in the episode. I could see the resemblance. I made some money from my acting, my investments went well, and now I can devote all my time to my real passion, searching for the original language. And that was how we learned from Mr. Laplage a.k.a. Mr. Beach, a.k.a. the exercised and fully in his right mind, Tommy Starnes. Sounds like the session is over. Thanks, Mr. Laplage. Yes, good luck. Great presentation. I still wished we could do something for him. We opened the door and started to step into the hallway, when we noticed two tall men wearing dark designer suits, expensive-looking leather shoes, and Ray-Bans, loitering outside the room. They were wearing the laminated paid registrant name tags and holding limp Conlang-Con tote bags, but they definitely did not fit in with the Conlang crowd. They looked like the bodyguards I had seen hovering any time Dr. Grigori addressed us. We jumped quickly back into the room and shut the door. Neith waved his tablet. Mind if I take a picture? Not at all. Great. Selfie? Thanks. Uh, one more thing. Don't let your fame go to your head. Neith clicked a few things on the device and smiled. Suddenly, the door swung open and three men dressed like Captain James T. Kirk, four Spocks, and a bunch of Officer Ahuras in miniskirts and go-go boots swarmed into room 311, brandishing cell phone cameras and chanting, Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. We squeezed past the crowd in the doorway and noticed the Armani-arrayed men crushed against the hallway wall, trying to escape being trampled by the swelling, chanting crowd. 
we hurried in the opposite direction and made it into the stairwell. What did you do? I posted the selfie on the ConlingCon website with Owen Beach signing autographs and posing for pictures in room 311. Later that night, we used a computer in the library to get onto the ConlingCon website. The big story on the homepage was the surprise guest appearance of child star Owen Beach. It was accompanied by a photo of Rowan Laplage, ABD, surrounded by Uhuras, with a huge grin on his boyish, shining face. After leaving ConlangCon, we got back to Harvard Commons and gathered around a cafe table in the square, listening as Neith read aloud, My dear Noah, by now now you have been given given instructions instructions you cannot comprehend for a purpose you cannot fathom. You fear that even if you comply, your efforts will ultimately be in vain. You must say yes. The archangels have instructed me to write this letter to you to convince you to agree to your difficult task. You must be the sprig from which the human race will once again grow, multiply, and fill the world. You are afraid that even if you accept your unlikely mission, Even if you bring your family to safety along with all the plants and animals needed for the flourishing of creation after the deluge, the Watchers will escape their prison, will once again wreak havoc upon the earth, causing violence and destruction. My dear one, fear not. Remember that I would not lead you astray, and that I know truth straight from the mouths of angels, and that I share with you the behest of the Holy One. Would that I could take your task on myself and save you the ordeal you will undergo. But I cannot. To you and to you alone I disclose this information so that you will know the wisdom of the Holy One, the strength of the chains which bind the Watchers, and the ingenuity of their place of capture, and be reassured that the plan will not go astray. The importance of what I share is also such that you must destroy this missive, tempted as you will be to keep it. I disclosed in the book named for me that the Watchers are chained beyond the mountain of antimony. Deep in a chasm filled with fire, they await their final destruction. To you alone I disclose this additional detail, the location of the Watchers' imprisonment, so that you may know that no one will ever find them. Their prison is a rocky island, surrounded by a fierce and cold ocean, a land of fire and ice. The Watchers are held in a chamber deep below columns of fire and dense mountains of ice. The island is uninhabited. Who would go to such a place? And even if someone should visit its inhospitable shores, who would make it their home? Only when the Great One signals the end of time, the time of judgment and recompense, Will the Great One speak the word of release? The only word that will unbind them. Only at that time, and by that word, will they be unchained and led away to their final destruction. It pains me to encourage you in this journey that you must make. I know you will suffer. Your heart will break as the floodwaters rise, and you will wonder if there is another way to begin again. You will long to hear a word of restraint by which the waters will cease their relentless fall, and dry land will once again appear. But, my dear Noah, you must say yes.
I must stop now. Allow yourself one rereading and then destroy this. Share its contents with no one, and all shall be well. well. Your loving great-grandpapa, Enoch. I understand something now. He pulled a small Bible up from his back pocket and read aloud a passage from Genesis. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. This is after the flood. Noah gets drunk, and Ham sees Noah's nakedness, and his whole family gets cursed for it. Uh, Seems kind of harsh, right? Yeah. Scholars have tried to figure out what it really means. Why Noah would react so strongly to something that sounds embarrassing at the worst. But nakedness can also mean shame, right? Yes. In other words, Ham saw what caused his father shame, that Noah kept the letter. Ham saw the letter. He must have read it and seen that Noah was supposed to destroy it. He could have realized this information would be very valuable. He could have sold it or given it, I suppose, to one of the Nephilim. But by this time, it's after Babel, and no one knows the original language anymore. So the Gregories, or their agents, give the manuscript to Dr. Sturgeon, who translates it. Then maybe they even kill him once they know he's finished. So the Gregories know what it says. But they may not have counted on there being a copy in the lingua ignota. And they were hovering outside the lecture room because they don't want anyone else to know what it says. Because the Gregories don't want anyone to stop them. They want to release the Watchers, and the Book of Noah gives them important information. Information Noah was supposed to destroy. And what might have seemed vague when Enoch wrote it isn't vague anymore. The Book of Noah tells us where the Watchers are. An island with columns of fire and dense ice. Columns of fire under dense ice. Oh, no. An uninhabited island? Nor will it ever be? Enoch hadn't counted on the Vikings. It's Iceland, isn't it? Where the transmission from those kids came from. Where the Gregories are mining more antimony. What does it say again about how to break the watches out of their prison? Enoch says the Great One will speak the word of release, the only word that will unbind them. Do you think that's literal? The only word that will unbind them? Uh, Like he's saying there is one word, the word of release. And what if that word is spoken? The chains will come off the watchers? Uh, We better make sure no one says that word, whatever it is. We need to keep this letter to ourselves. And we had better get back to school before they notice we've been gone all day. I bent over to pick up my tote bag and found myself staring at the logo. I was fixated on the word of release, the only word that will unbind them. Where had I heard of a word of release, a word spoken that let something or someone go, that set something free? 
I was jerked back to my surroundings by the shouts of a young boy, a toddler, having a tantrum. His father was pulling him by the arm, trying to get him to stand up from where the boy had plunked down on the filthy sidewalk and was refusing to move. Please, let's go. Stand up. Stop it. He tried to reason with the toddler who was wailing and beating his clenched fists against his father like a tiny, crazed tyrant. Like he's possessed. The penny dropped. The garrison demoniac. Jesus says a word, and the demons leave the man's body. One word is spoken, and the demons are released. Could that be what Enoch was talking about? One single word that would set the watchers free if spoken? What was that word? Did the Gregorys know it? That night, my tablet signaled that I had an email, a message from Fred. I had forgotten to tell him not to use my email in case it gave anything away to our monitor. Too late. I clicked it open. Coordinates for the next appearance of your constellation. 25.2048 degrees north. 55.2708 degrees east. I copied the coordinates put them into my map app, and a location popped up. Dubai, site of the world's tallest skyscraper. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whiffenstock, copyright 2019. The novel is available at whiffenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 10 features, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, David Merrill as Josh, Aya Fuad as Zia, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Daniel McLean as Rowan LaPlage, John Gardner as Dr. Sturgeon, Rachel Wenner Gardner as Manuscript Dealer, Chris Sycama as Enoch, and Joseph Pagano as The Frustrated Parent. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and give it a rating or review so others can find it too. We'll be back again soon with Episode 11.